I'm going to preach a message that in one way or another is going to be similar to others that I do just about every year because what amazes me about Christmas is the fulfillment of God's promises to provide for our salvation. And I have to revisit that, and it's a great opportunity to do that. And I hope that it will not be uh, tiresome to you, but encouraging to your faith and, and equipping to you as you speak with others. So today we're talking about birth planning. Now, I remember uh, that very special day years ago when my wife Angie told me for the first time that we were expecting. That was exciting news. And in fact, we had been married for 10 years, so it was definitely news. So she gives me this great news, that, oh, this is fantastic. And of course, you're a little bit nervous at first, you know, for the first several weeks because you want to be sure everything's healthy and right and everything like that. So you try to keep this exciting news to yourself, maybe just so that you know how it is. And, and so then finally, it's time to start rolling this news out to your family and your closest friends and that sort of thing. And it's so exciting. Uh, and I remember when Angie uh, decided to call her mom and dad and, and give them the news. We were up, uh, we were living in um, Michigan at the time, Kalamazoo, Michigan, that's a real place, um, K-A-L-A-M-A-Zoo. Uh, we were in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and um, her parents down in Florida, in the southeast coast of Florida, Stewart, and, um, and so Angie tried to give them a call, and they were out. The, it was picked up, you know, just the answering machine, so, so she just said, you know, hey, Mom, I just wanted to talk to you, give me a call back when you get, when you get a chance, and so, you know, so she does. So it's... It's uh, quite a bit later, her mom manages to get back to her, and so she calls back, and Angie gives her the news, and her mom just about broke down, and she said, well, if I'd known it was for that, I would have stayed home for the last 10 years. <laughs> She's so sorry she missed that news on the first call. Well, so then, becomes, then comes all the rest of the planning, and if you've done this before, you, you know how it is. You're thinking, okay, now where is this baby going to be born? Right? If you, especially if you have different hospital options where you are and whatever your medical plan may be and, and so on. And so we had that decision to, to deal with. We had to find out, you know, okay, well, what does the insurance company cover and all of that sort of a thing? And how are we going to do this? And, you know, we wanted a nurse midwife. And so we had to line all that up. And, and, uh, and then there were birth classes. And so we did this whole series. There was this whole long series of, of training. I'll tell you what, I, I will not try to impersonate a doctor, but if there was an emergency, I'm pretty confident I could deliver a baby after going through that training. I learned things I never knew I wanted to learn. And so that was all, all, all this thorough preparation for that and how to be ready. Where's this baby going to stay? Where's this baby going to live? I mean, in our house, yes, but where in the house? And so we're in this 154-year-old farmhouse there in the, in the in, well, it had been farm country, and there was still a lot of farm country all around us, but now a little bit of town called Schoolcraft had grown up around this. And I think our house was maybe the oldest one in the whole little town. Um, we were in this great little place, and we had fun trying to, you know, fix this thing up. It wasn't in bad shape, but, you know, there was stuff to do. And, and so the upstairs bedroom where, where this was going to be Megan's nursery, her room, this thing, everything's original pretty much on the inside of this house, right? So like the door, it's like one of those doors that had like one of those little house on the prairie type little latch handles is like, you know, swing it open. It's just a nothing but a door swinging on hinges. And you go in there and it's got these wood floors. And over the years, the wood planks have, you know, shrunk and leaving these just huge gaping cracks between all of the floorboards that have collected grime for decades. So you go in there and you go, Ugh, 
I don't think I want to take my shoes off in this room. And so I remember hours and hours. I had to get knee pads because I was hours and hours on my knees with a little paint scraper and stuff and a screwdriver scraping out every one of those cracks the full length of the room and getting that all cleaned up and then sanding the edges and caulking it in and then painting the floor. It's the best thing we could do with the thing. And painted the floor and all this kind of painted the room. All of these things that you do. And then you think, what are they going to sleep in? And so there's got to be the bed. And what are you going to put in the car? You've got to have the car seat. And then there's got to be the stroller. And then all of the things that you don't really need, but then you're kind of really glad you have if you do, like the little swing thing, you know? in the kitchen so mom can get some things done and the baby's just kind of and you know you can feed him in that it's a high chair it's convertible and all that well thankfully my choir I had was an associate pastor minister of music for uh, some years in that church there in Michigan and and the choir and orchestra came together and had just the most beautiful uh, baby shower for us that like provided all these big expensive items praise God we just you know so we had the spaceship stroller you know the thing that's got onboard storage and cup holders and, you know, the visors and all that kind of stuff. And you, just, you, you had to, you know, just like push the button and twist the handle and it would fold it down and just, then you had to heave the giant thing into your car. But so all these things, all this planning is very exciting. It's very detailed. And it's amazing all the things you have to figure out. You have to figure out what are they going to wear on the way home from the hospital? And you have to figure out how to mount that car seat thing properly in the car so that it's anchored properly and all this kind of, oh my goodness, the planning that goes into anticipation of a birth and bringing this child home is amazing. And now we look at this time of year, we reflect upon the birth of Jesus Christ and we ask ourselves, you know, was there any of that kind of stuff? Was there any real planning for this child? Because somehow he ended up in a feeding trough for animals in a, what was probably a cave uh, that was the, the keeping place for the animals. It seems like they barely got there on time. It wasn't a hospital. There wasn't a midwife. There wasn't a doctor. Uh, there was no car seat. There was no stroller. There's no little swingy chair. So was there any real preparation that went into this baby's birth? Well, in fact, the most important things, some hugely significant things, were actually planned far, far in advance, the birth of this child. Things that highlight for us the significance of the birth of this child to a degree that it really is undeniable to anyone who is honest with themselves and with the facts. It is undeniable that this birth was an act of God in a miraculous way. And you could say any child's birth is miraculous, but we're talking about something very, very unique here. God made very particular and pre-published plans for the birth of the Savior. And that's the first point. I don't have an outline, but find some paper if you want. Uh, raise your hand even. If so. I think we can probably get some paper to you if you need that. Uh, but God made particular pre-published plans for the birth of the Savior. Now, you know, you all go through the question when you're having a baby, you, it's like, okay, are we going to tell people what the gender of the baby is going to be? Are we going to tell the people what the name is going to be? Because no matter how much information you provide, people always want more, right? And you give them, oh, we're expecting, oh, about when, okay, we give them the date, and it's like, well, do you know what the gender is? And like, well, what's their name? And there's always something else. And Angie was determined she wanted to reserve some mystery 
So we did end up, I think, telling the gender eventually, but we withheld the name. She refused to have people talking about this child by name before the child was actually amongst us. So, so you held on to that little bit of information, right? So, but here we have so much information about the birth of the Savior pre-published, and not just months in advance, not just years in advance, not just decades in advance, but centuries in advance. Now, we cannot, you would be here so long today if we were to really try to exhaust this. So I'm going to highlight just just a very few little things. But really, they're enough if you just consider these few things that demonstrate that God was moving uniquely to orchestrate the birth of this Savior. We see, first of all, that amongst God's particular pre-published plans for the birth of the Savior was particular location. And in fact, I say locations because it's not just the birthplace. There's actually more to it than was predicted, as we can see here, if you can bring that up, gentlemen. First of all, we see the prediction that who this child would be born, this promised Savior. Now, we're talking about things that are laid out in the prophets of the Old Testament, And he's called the Messiah in anticipation because Messiah means the promised one. And God had told Adam and Eve that there would be someone he would send. And then he told Abraham that there'd be someone he would send. And others throughout the ages and through the prophets, giving more and more information so that people could be sure not to miss the Messiah when he came. And these are one of the very, this is one of the very particular details in the prophet. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, it says, You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are... Do we have text by any chance? Is that available to us? I think Glenn was working on that, so I'm wondering if he got that available. If you find it, put it up there. I'll read it. You can follow along if you want to look it up in your own copy of Scripture. Micah 5, 2. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth from me, God says, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, there's a lot that can be unpacked even just in that little verse. We have very specifically this little town of Bethlehem and acknowledging that it is from among the clans of Judah, but it is so small that it wouldn't even be expected that this would be a place for an important person to be born. Now, I don't want to get into local names because I'll get into trouble. But I know from my own experience growing up in Central Florida, there were the big cities that were kind of the impressive places to be, and you had all your professional people there, highly educated people and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, like Tampa and Orlando and things like this, Miami, of course, Tallahassee. And, and so these places, but then you had these other little pockets like by where I grew up, where there's like this little tiny town called Bartow, and you had to say it the right way because Bartow was redneck town. Now, do you know, reg, are you familiar with redneckism? The redneckery is, is famous in Florida uh, for the, the stereotype is the, the big old 
pickup truck, which you may call a ute, but it's a pickup truck, right? And it's got oversized tires on it with lots of, you know, the knobby tires and stuff like that. And it might even have the extra muffler thing, you know, up, up above because they like to go mudding in their trucks. It means you go out where it's really muddy, you know, spin around, throw the mud, you know, they come back plastered. It's like a badge of honor to drive down the road in central Florida, especially in Bartow. If you're driving down the road and your pickup truck is just plastered with mud all down the sides, you're just like <laughs> down the road. Everybody's like, yeah, the dude's been mudding. All right, this is the culture. And, the, you know, there's typically like maybe even a Confederate flag in the back window of this truck and maybe a shotgun. And when the dude steps out, he's wearing, you know, well-worn blue jeans with holes in the knees and a giant belt buckle and probably a flannel shirt with the sleeves ripped off. And he's got that cap. He's got that, you know, sort of a ball cap, but it's got a semi-truck on it or something like that, and it's all curled up. Okay? And he's got something in here. Oh, it's got something in there. It's all, it's all the time, right? So this is Bartow, all right? So imagine somebody said, now, the next president of the United States is going to be from Bartow, Florida. And people go, Bar where? No way. And if they know anything about Bartow, they'll be like, yeah, that's not likely, all right? Well, that's kind of the reputation of Bethlehem in its time and place, okay? Bethlehem was just this little village, you know, outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the big important city. Bethlehem was this little town outside, and it was just known for, it was an agrarian town. I mean, it was, they were sheep farmers, mostly. Shepherds, that's what they did, all right? And shepherds were not considered to be you know, the, the top echelon of society, right? They might have been a little less educated than, than some. They weren't necessarily the privileged ones who got to, to go and study the Torah and all that sort of a thing with the, with the famous rabbis and, and everything. They were just good hard workers. They were just the salt-of-the-earth people who grew up tending sheep, and they knew their business, and they did their business well, but there just wasn't anything notable about them or the place. And so it's just not a place that would be thought that way. And remember that Bethlehem is significant in that not only was it from the town of, from the tribe of Judah, that was in its way significant, but it's also known as the city of David. So there was someone famous who came from Bethlehem, but that was considered rather exceptional, right? You know the account. David was a shepherd. He was just a sheep farmer. And he was the youngest of the, of the boys of the family. And so there was no expectation for him to be anything other than a shepherd all his life. Right? But something exceptional happened there, as you know. God chose him and appointed him and made him king. But nobody expected anything like that would ever happen again from Bethlehem. But Micah, 700 years, by the way, Micah's ministry, Micah's life and ministry was 700 years prior to the time of Jesus Christ. And he penned, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, this prediction that it would be out of Bethlehem, that is just insignificant amongst the tribes, the, the clans of Judah, or the little towns of Judah, and yet said, now this, he's quoting God, this is a message from God as the deliverer, uh, Micah is the prophet delivering the message from God, and so these are supposed to be the words of God, you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
from you shall come forth from me. God is saying, I'm sending someone, very specifically for myself, who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. What? So I'm sending someone directly, God says, who's actually been around from of old. Coming straight from me, been around already for a long, long time from of old, from ancient days. Well, who in the world could God be talking about there? This is not just a regular product of Bethlehem. Well, then we look at Isaiah because, okay, so we can conclude from this, okay, it looks like the, the promised one that God's talking about is supposed to be from Bethlehem. But then Isaiah writes, and Isaiah is a, a contemporary of Micah, so also about 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and, 2, 1 and 2 says, There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought it. I know the, the context is confusing. You don't have all of it here. But we'll get to the important part. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Now that, that identifies a very specific part of, of Israel where those tribes were. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. And that was an expression. People knew where we were talking about by saying that as well. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now see, Galilee was up in the area that, that was ruled by Samaria during the time of the, of, the, of the divided kingdom. And there had been a whole lot of mixing in there, especially because of the way that the Assyrians uh, did things. The, Assyrian, uh, the Assyrians, when they came and took over a place, they didn't just deport everybody like the Babylonians. The Babylonians, they just came and kind of took everybody who was anybody and took them and hauled them away altogether uh, and deported them and then just let whatever happened in the background happen there. Whoever lived there just kind of filled in the gaps. But Assyria, their strategy was when they took over a new land, they would take choice individuals from there, rulers and educated people and stuff like that, and they would move them to another part of the empire and employ them there, give them jobs and responsibilities, and take other people from other parts of their empire and bring them into this space. So that you had a divide-and-conquer method. You, never, you had these mixed loyalties all through the, the empire, and so you didn't have people who would gather together in critical mass to fight back against their rule. And yet they, and yet they were able to have things continue to be prosperous and productive in all these different parts of the empire because they put people in charge to run things, right? So that was their strategy, right? So, so now the reputation of Galilee, this area up in the north in, in, in Israel, has come to be just this really mixed up places. You got these people from all over the world, all these different ethnicities all in there, not all pure Jewish people. And so it was, again, this area now has kind of got a reputation to those, you know, very pure Jews who could trace all of their lineage and who were from Jerusalem and everything like that, they would talk about those people up in Galilee like, ew, uh, oh, those guys, you know, not a lot of respect. Okay? You even see that response, you know, when, when, the, when the Jesus' disciples, who were fishermen from the Galilee region, and, and they're preaching and teaching in the synagogue, and people are going, wait a minute, aren't these guys from Galilee? How can they speak so intelligently? It was they were blew their minds that somebody from Galilee could speak so well, all right? So, so now here we have this reference here, 700 years in advance, before even the deportation and all of these things that brought these events about, predicting that this land would be known as, as this 
mixing place of, of the nations, Galilee. And yet, now it's predicting that someone special is going to be there. And it says, the people who walked in darkness... You know the prophets speak of things as matter of fact, as something that's done, even when they're predicting it for the future, right? Because it's coming from God, it's as good as done. So they say the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So the prediction now is that that the Messiah, this great light amongst the Gentiles, and that's what uh, Simeon said. When Simeon, and if you remember the, t- the priest in the temple, when Jesus was brought into the temple, and he holds the baby, and he says, now, Lord, I can, re- you know, I can come to you in peace because I have seen these things come true, and, and it references the, you know, the, the, the light shone amongst the Gentiles, amongst the nations. So this is known as this Gentile mixed area, and the Messiah is spoken of as a light shining in darkness because they consider these people who didn't know the one true and living God to be living in darkness. And now here there's this prediction that the Messiah would be this light shining in darkness among the nations in Galilee. So now which is it? Is the Messiah from Bethlehem in Judea adjacent to Jerusalem, or is the Messiah to be coming from Galilee to the north. Well, apparently both, according to the prophecies. How is that possible? They didn't know. The prophets didn't know. They just faithfully wrote what God directed them to write. And they had to trust that God would work out the details. But more than that, imagine you've got somebody who who somehow managed to be from two places. That narrows things down a little bit wouldn't you say, for who can be the Messiah? Someone who is apparently from two places. Um, and they're very specific, Bethlehem and, and Galilee. All right, but then there is a particular lineage. So now amongst that, you know, whatever number of people in the world who are from both of these particular places now also have to be from a particular lineage. And we see throughout the Old Testament Scriptures that first of all, they have to be descendant of Abraham because in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God spoke to Abraham and said, Now the Lord, Yahweh, it's all capitals, said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And this key verse here, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So big promise. It's got to be from Abraham. That, That one who's going to be the blessing to all the nations comes from Abraham. But then more specifically, he's going to come from his son Isaac, not Ishmael, but Isaac. If you remember that in these chapters in Genesis, God promised Abraham to be a great nation, and he was getting old. He didn't have any children. He and Sarah cooked up a plan, did surrogacy. Isaac, uh, Ishmael was the product. And yet God came to Abraham and said, no, 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 that's not what I said. So in Genesis 17, verses 15 through 21, if you want to Find that for yourself, or we'll see if it comes up. Genesis 17, 15 through 21, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. 
Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, uh, uh, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, why can't you use Ishmael to fulfill these promises? God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So not Ishmael, but Isaac. That's narrowing the lineage. Now we see Isaac has his sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the eldest. He should have been the one through whom all important lineage was driven. Well, you know the situation and the trickery that took place, and yet God had said even beforehand that It would be the second one. It would be the younger one that would be his special project, the one with whom he would um, carry out this covenant. And he tells Jacob this later on after Jacob goes through troubles and trials and finally acknowledges God as, as the one true and living God to whom he owed his loyalty. Then God spoke to him, Genesis 26, verses 1 through 5. Now there's a famine on the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and will give to you your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So now God is saying, no, not Esau, but Jacob. Not any of the other people, not Abraham's brothers, but Abraham. Of Abraham's children, not, not Ishmael the firstborn, but Isaac. Of of Isaac's sons, not the firstborn Esau, but the second Jacob. And then Jacob has how many sons? Twelve. Twelve sons. The first is Reuben. So Reuben receives the, the linear significance, right? No. Okay, he kind of blew it. So, so next comes Simeon. So it should go to Simeon. No, not Simeon. He blew it too. Okay, the next one in line is Levi. Levi should be the one. No, he blew it. His dad said Judah, number four, is the one who's going to be significant amongst his brothers. And we can see in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, we have, we have Jacob on his deathbed speaking these prophecies over his sons. And he comes to Judah after he's disqualified his three older brothers. He comes to Judah, and notice the, the imagery and the things that he says. It's, a, it's very poetic, but notice the imagery that's here that indicates royalty. Words like scepter, things like robes dipped or dyed in the blood of grapes, colors of royalty, and so on. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, plural, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes, royal red and purple robes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So it's to be not Abraham's brothers or kin. It's not to be his firstborn Ishmael. It's to be Isaac. It's not supposed to be firstborn of Isaac. Esau is supposed to be Jacob. It's not supposed to be the firstborn of the secondborn of the thirdborn of Jacob, but to be Judah. And then fast forward another 1,500 years, and you come to David. Now, David wasn't the firstborn of his family either. Yes, he's a descendant. He's, he's from Judah. He's from Bethlehem. But when God was looking for a king and he sent his prophet Samuel to Jesse's house, the assumption, once again, very culture, was bring in the eldest son. He's the oldest. He's the most important of the family. He's big and tall and strong and smart and handsome. And he comes in and, and Samuel says, no. Oh, okay. Well, maybe it's the next one. He's also big and tall and strong and handsome. No. No, 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 no. You got anybody left? Well, I mean, there's, you know, the youngest, the kid, he's out with the sheep. I'll wait. And then comes David. That's the one. The last of the brothers. God says, that's the one. And he gives promises to, to David. David wanted to build a house for, for God when he was a wealthy king. He wanted to build a house for God, and, and God said, you've got so much blood on your hands, David, and I want you building my house. And by the way, I, I didn't ask you to build me a house. I don't need you to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build you a house. And he talks about the lineage. He said, from you will come the Messiah. And then the prophet Isaiah confirms this. In Isaiah 11, 1, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Says there shall come forth from a shoot, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father, right? From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so Isaiah the prophet confirms the Messiah coming from Jesse's family very specifically. And God made promises to David. And so the expectation is that the Messiah has to be a descendant of David. Jeremiah. As well, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming. By the way, Jeremiah is 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. You see that branch terminology kind of links, refers back to Isaiah's prophecy 100 years before. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And then in chapter 33 of the same Jeremiah 33, 14 and 15. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So God made very particular pre-published plans for the birth of the Savior. And amongst many other things, these things are clear, that this Messiah is supposed to be both from Bethlehem and from Galilee. And this person is not only supposed to be from that subset of people, someone who descended directly from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, eventually Jesse and David. Seems like we're narrowing things down. I mean, what are the odds? Because, I mean, a person can be born in Bethlehem, which is known as the city of David, but not everybody who lived in, De- in Bethlehem was a descendant of David. That was still a rather narrow subset of people from Bethlehem. Well, we see, for the sake of time, we jump to this. Jesus met uniquely all the qualifications for the promised Savior. The reality is that there are at least 300 prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah, all of which are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Mathematicians have tried to calculate the chances of even a small subset of those. They even try the 300. They, they put together eight key prophecies like location of birth, things like that, that a person could never fake because you can't control where you're born. You can't control where your parents take you as an infant. And you can't control how you're going to die either. Other people decide that for you as well. Right? So, so just taking a small subset of prophecies about the Messiah that a person could not manufacture or fake for themselves. If, you know, if someone came along and said, well, I want people to believe I'm the Messiah, so I'll go live over here for a while, and I'll go do this sort of a thing. You, know, but you can't control where you're born and how you die. So at least narrowing those down, mathematicians looked at those things, and the numbers are so astronomical, I don't even know how to deliver them to you. I mean, we're talking things to the powers of tens and kind of, kind of numbers of the chances of, this, of all of these things happening coincidentally in the life of one person. I mean, the, 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 the odds are such that playing the lottery looked like a sure thing in comparison. So it has to be miraculous that these things have all come true in the life of Jesus. Let's just look at these few things that we've addressed here. Locational history we see in Jesus. We see that he was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, uh, verse 1, gives us that account, and so does Luke. I'm missing a page, but I guess you know where it is. We're familiar with the accounts. Matthew, Matthew uh, 2, 1 and Luke 2, verses 4 through 7, we read these accounts and we see, in fact, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's a well-established fact for us. But then we also see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, that Jesus came with, John the Baptist is the forerunner, another fulfillment of prophecy, by the way. Uh, he comes and, and he's the one who's declaring, make way in the desert. Uh, the, the Messiah is coming. And so he's out preaching and preparing the way for Jesus. And it says very specifically, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. In Mark chapter 1, verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So we see in these other accounts as well, Luke mentions it also. 
that Jesus came specifically from Galilee. How did God coordinate that? Well, you know the account, right? The reason that he was born in Bethlehem, even though his parents actually lived up there in Nazareth of Galilee, that would be where you expect for him to be born, their child. But this wasn't just their child. This is God's child, God's promised child. And so it just so happened at that time that this Caesar came along who said, you know what? I think I'd like a complete census of all the people in my empire. And he establishes his due date and says, by this particular date, everyone must return to the location of their lineage to be registered for this census. It just so happens that that happened right at the time that would dictate that Mary and Joseph would have to travel from Nazareth and Galilee in the north down to be in Bethlehem at this particular date even though she was in her third trimester and expecting this baby any day. And so he is from the tribe of Judah. He is a descendant of David. He's born in the city of David, even though his parents live in Galilee to the north, Galilee of the nations. And so in due time, after a trip to Egypt to avoid Herod, and then a return back to Nazareth and Galilee, Jesus grew up there. And he came from there to begin his ministry. So we have satisfaction of these two things, rather uniquely orchestrated, if you ask me. Well, then we look at the lineage. Well, we're familiar with the lineage of, of Jesus if we've been um, around and reading the Bible and, and listening to the messages, but we see it very clearly in both Matthew and Luke. We have genealogies there. And we see that this family are direct descendants of King David. Now, that, of course, is why they went to Bethlehem at this time of the birth. And so he satisfies that. But now, one more thing very specifically. Not only locational history satisfies the prophecies, not only lineage, which is rather particular, satisfies the prophecies, but there's another qualification. It's his lordship. And one of the things that we sing about all the time at Christmas time is the virgin birth. That also is a prophecy fulfilled of the Old Testament from Isaiah. I'm not pulling that up right now. I, beyond that, we see that Jesus made his own claims to uniqueness. When he came along, he made rather shocking, bold claims. For instance... In John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus is speaking to, uh, it's on the occasion of, of, of his friend Lazarus' passing, and he's speaking to his sisters who are grieving. And Martha says, if you had come sooner, I'm sure you could have kept him from dying. And what does Jesus say? I am. We talked about that in Greek structure before. Ego, Amy. I myself am the one who is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, I mean, that's a bold enough statement, right? But to, keep, but to keep doubling down on this thing, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's talking about eternal life. So anyone who believes in me and dies, they will be resurrected to life, and, and those people will live forever, is what Jesus said. 
if you believe in me. Now, what would you think of someone who stood in front of the cameras today and said things like this? I am the resurrection. I am the source of life. Anyone who believes in me, though they die, I will bring them back to life. If they believe in me, they will live forever. Now, if you just saw any old whoever standing in front of the cameras saying these things, be honest, what would you be thinking? Lock them up. Padded cell. Right? Keep them far away from my children. <laughs> right? Nuts! So how is it that people today want to speak of Jesus as one of the great prophets, as, you know, one, one good path to follow, you know, at least a good teacher? Really? Someone who stands in people and says things like that? If he's not exactly who he claimed to be, <laughs> then those aren't... Those aren't the words of a good teacher or a good prophet. Okay? Further, John 14, 6, he makes it explicit. Jesus said to these people around him, I am, I myself am the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What? Who do you think you are? Not a good prophet, not a good teacher, not someone to follow unless he is exactly who he says he is. And so I come back once again to the, it's not original to me, C.S. Lewis put forward the tri trilemma. You know a dilemma, right? Difficulty between two choices, two options. Trilemma, three ways, all right? So as C.S. Lewis put it, in my own paraphrase of how C.S. Lewis put it, you have to choose. Jesus doesn't give you the option of putting him on the shelf next to the other gods and prophets to just pick and choose as you like. He doesn't give us that luxury. He forces a choice for or against him uniquely. He made these bold claims to uniqueness. And so either he is a liar, and, and, and his words are rather bold. <laughs> Lewis is about that, you know, like, uh, like someone who really ought to be locked away for the, you know, serious criminals, even like a demon, he says, or someone who is demonized. For someone to say, trust in me, follow me, and I can affect your eternal state, well, if that's not true, well, then that's just immoral. That's wicked for someone to, to say, put all your trust in me, follow me. And if they know that they can't do anything for these people, if they know they can't deliver, well, then that's the worst kind of liar. Nobody should consider Jesus any kind of a good guy whatsoever if that was the case. That's the first possibility for Jesus to make these claims that if he knew they weren't true, then he was the very worst kind of liar. Sick. Sick in the head. Well, which brings us to the next one. Genuinely mentally ill. I mean, if he really thought that these things were true that he was saying, and if they weren't true, well, then you can only conclude that this man is deeply, severely mentally ill. And to use the term of C.S. Lewis's time, a lunatic. So these are the two possibilities. I mean, if, if he was not God, come from heaven, 
to fulfill all the prophecies, to be the one way to salvation. If he was not, then there's only two possibilities given his claims. He was either the worst kind of liar or someone who should be put in a padded room. So the only alternative, if you don't believe that, if you don't think Jesus is the worst kind of liar, if you don't think he's an absolutely evil man, if you don't think he was absolutely stark raving mad, well, then the only other conclusion is he is God come from heaven to fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah and the Savior. And he is the only way to life, the only standard of truth, the only way to God. As he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So he's unique. He is alone in his status. And when he said, come to me, all you who labor and are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, then that means something. That means anyone, no matter what their past, no matter what their history, no matter what their questions, no matter what their failings, is invited to come to Jesus, and he is qualified, he is able to give them the rest that they need, and it's an eternal rest. It's an enduring peace. So we're not just celebrating at this time of year a sweet story about a little baby lying in, the, in hay with cows standing by, and we like to sing the songs. I like the songs too, cattle lowing, you know. You can, just, you can just see the sheep and the, and, the, and the cows and the goats just standing by, just swaying pleasantly next to the sweet little Savior. Well, I don't know if it looked like that. But I know that he was born in the absolute humblest of circumstances, specifically by God's design. He was born amongst the humblest people because the Savior didn't come just for the important people in this world. He came from, for everyone, and he was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Galilee, fulfilling two prophecies. He came exactly from the specific lineage that was required. And when you narrow all these things down amongst so many other things, this is just impossible unless God made it so. So you have to weigh. If you're an individual who has not made the decision yet, you have to weigh the weight of these things. Now, you can go on being a cynic if you want, but sooner or later you're going to have to ask yourself, are you really being a critical thinker anymore? Is your cynicism really logical? Does it make any sense whatsoever? You have God who claims to be the creator of the, of the universe, who created people, wanted to have a relationship with them, and these people rebelled against him. And out of his great love, he makes a plan to fix this problem. And he begins to work out the details through the ages, through centuries and through millennia, and pointing people to so many flags, so many indicators, so that when the promised one comes who's going to solve this deep, enduring problem of our separation from God because of our sin, our rebellion, that we should not miss it. And Jesus came and fulfilled all of those things miraculously. So we celebrate Christmas as the pivotal event of human history, the arrival of the promised Savior from God. 
a sweet baby, I'm sure. But more importantly, a Savior who was born to die so that we can have life for eternity. Let's thank Him. Father, I pray that you would make us mindful this time of year of the great privilege we have, and with that, the great responsibility to share this good news with other people. Help us, those who have, have already enjoyed, who have accepted the Savior that you sent us and have enjoyed the, the establishment of a right relationship with you in spite of our faults, in spite of our sin. We know that we can look forward to eternity with you when all will be made right, when our sin will be completely expunged from our experience, when we will be made holy, when we will be glorified, and we can enjoy eternity with you. We're so thankful. Help us to be grateful that when we sing the, the sweet carols and the fun carols and, and enjoy the treats and exchange the gifts, help us to do all these things as acts of worship, being mindful of the great gift you have given to us. But Father, for those who have not yet accepted the greatest gift of all time, I pray this year that you would impress upon them the importance of receiving gratefully what you have offered. I pray, Father, that there would be many who would come to know you, who, would, who can gain that status of being considered one of your children, who can have the certainty of, of heaven and eternal life ahead because Jesus promised it. We're mindful of people around the world who are enduring very difficult circumstances and, and they're just hard for us to grasp. We know that, that sin is, is just wreaking havoc in this world. The curse of sin is just so horrible in the ways that we see it playing out in so many parts of the world today. Father, we ask that in the midst of, of these terrible things that you would reap a great harvest of people to whom you would make your message known and that you would grant them understanding and faith to believe that, that they can be delivered one day from the horrors of this world into the glory of eternal life with you. That all these things can be left behind. We want to see that day come. The, the more we see the suffering, the more we desire, Jesus, that you would come back and that you would put an end to these things. But we know that that means a closed door for those who haven't accepted you yet. So we're torn between these things. We leave it to your wisdom, Father. But I would pray that you would help us to have that sense of urgency, that maybe you will come and return sometime soon, and that people who do not know you need to know you by the, before that time comes. So help us to celebrate with genuine joy, but also with a sense of urgency to bring others to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. And speaking of that little town of Bethlehem and that lowly cattle stall that our Savior was born in, we're going to sing our final hymn. We're going to stand and sing Once in Royal David's City.